Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief for recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm the host and tonight my guest is Rebecca Alcock. She's recently completed her work as a performance dietitian at the Melbourne Football Club. She's also worked at the Melbourne Rebels, Melbourne Storm and the ACT Brumbies. Rebecca completed her PhD on the topic of nutrition support for connective tissues in athletes at the Australian Institute of Sport and currently consults the Western United Football Club and is currently consulting to the Emerging Athletes Program at La Trobe University. In the new year, Rebecca is due to start at La Trobe University full-time as a lecturer and researcher in sports nutrition, and will be continue to develop the performance nutrition program for LEAP. The Prepare Like a Pro podcast mission is here to empower aspiring athletes and staff with practical knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals and to strengthen the AFL community. If you like the show, please show your support by following us on Instagram and subscribing to the podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome back. Thanks for jumping on. Thanks for having me. Round two yeah. <laughs> on, on the download. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this, this chat. And um, let's dive right into the beginning of, of your career. At what age did you discover you had a, a passion for sports nutrition? Yeah, so I was a bit of a, a late bloomer um, to, I guess, deciding my career. So when I finished high school, I went over to the UK. Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned last time, when I got back, my dad was sick. Uh, so he passed away about seven months uh, after that. Um, and then a few years later, I was in New Zealand with a boyfriend at the time, decided I no longer wanted to be a waitress uh, and that I was going to come back to Australia and start doing some study. Um, basically, redid year 12 um, from that, decided, found out what I enjoyed doing, kind of narrowed it down into what I could foresee myself doing. Um, and then when I sort of decided on becoming a dietitian, it was kind of clicked as though that was sort of what I, you know, a really good fit for me and what I've always probably wanted to, to do without sort of realizing it. Um, yeah. And I don't, you know, in terms of being a clinical dietitian, I didn't love being in the hospital setting. Um, and I guess optimizing, you know, someone's body and ability to perform was what kind of really sparked my interest. And so obviously led into sports nutrition. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a inspiring story, you know, when you've mentioned how, um, you went back to year 12, like for someone listening in, um, how did, no, for, and there's interested about going back as maybe a mature age, whether it be uni um, and, and having a career path. Maybe they're in their mid-40s or, or 30s and they want a bit of a change in their career or like yourself um, being in your early adulthood going back to, to high school. How was that experience and um, what, what were you hoping to get out of it? Was, it? was it clear to be dietitian at the time or was it more that you just wanted to get into university and, and work out your career from there? Yeah, so I read it at TAFE. So I, I finished year 12, um, but I got quite sick and sort of had some, some family stuff going on. So um, I did it just because I wanted to see, you know, what I was interested in and see sort of how well I could do when I applied myself and sort of had the capacity to do so. And like the experience, it was probably one of the fondest, you know, I studied for about 13 years all up and it was probably one of the fondest memories I have of studies because the teachers are so passionate there students want to be there. So there's no one kind of mucking about in the back of the class being told off. And 
you know, so it was just a fantastic experience and yeah, I would 100% do it again. And um, yeah, so from there, I kind of, um, you know, found that health and human development was a real passion sort of interest of mine. And then, yeah, just narrowed it down to sort of, um, you know, either psychology or speech pathology or dietetics and then mm-hmm. continued to narrow it down until I got to nutrition and yeah. And then, as I said, once I kind of realized that's what I wanted to do, it just kind of clicked and I was like, okay, this is, you know, always had an interest in this, but just didn't realize that's what I had that, you know, particular passion in. So. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing. And, and it's, um, it's a good point. Like you can have a few different um, passions and different experiences. It, it's all around sort of health. And you mentioned that um, later on, you discovered your passion also for performance side of things in sport. But when you're making those decisions um, that are quite pivotal, really, of you know, psychology, nutrition, health, um, was it speaking to other dietitians? Was it um, leaning on some mentors outside of the course? How did you come, for those listening that aren't sure where they want to go, where their path is, how did you come to find that nutrition was the one? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, um, I went and saw a job sort of counsellor um, guidance counselor, I guess, at the, at the TAFE, uh, who was really helpful and said to get a job seeker guide and literally go through the whole book and highlight everything you can foresee yourself doing and then just keep, you know, eliminating different things. And then it was literally down to speech pathology and dietetics and then, yeah, wow. just got down to it and, yeah, never looked back. And, like, I, I love studying it, which is why I'm kind of getting back into the academia side of things and wanting to do more research. Um, so, Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's a, that's a good exercise. Awesome. That's, yep. Yeah, thank you for that. And then you mentioned um, the passion for, for performance side compared to clinic. Um, how did you go about discovering that passion? Yeah, so I think um, so I was at Griffith Uni um, and Michael Leverett and Ben Desbrow, two uh, sports nutrition sort of researchers, lecturers were there and they it was just the course that kind of stood out. It was more fun and just a bit, I don't know, just, just just different, less dry than kind of that clinical dietetics. And I think doing placement as a dietitian, you know, we get taught that, you know, you go into uni and you have to come out and be a clinical dietitian that works in a hospital and doing placement. I just was like, this isn't for me, you know, trying to tell, you know, people that have often, um, you know, not necessarily made the right choices and you're trying to get them to improve their diet and they've got no interest in doing that. Um, that kind of solidified that that was the path I wanted to be on. And then it just, I was just drawn to it. I think I just found myself doing activities that were going to lead me into doing sports nutrition. So, mm. yeah. And you mentioned you've had over a decade of um, the academic uh, study and research at um, PhDs, no easy feat. Um, could you tell us um, your, your motive behind doing it and, and why did you want to do it on, on sports nutrition? Yeah, so I coming out of uni, um, as most a lot of uni students in general, I, I suppose do. I struggled to find work, um, so I was just picking up little bits and pieces here, um, here and there, doing still hospitality and things like that. And I had so we have to have a mentor the first year out of university, um, and I had Alan McCubbin, who's a who was at the time president of Sports Dietitians Australia, and I was doing sort of some activities with him, shadowing, going to different sporting events and things like that. Um, and I was just getting a bit frustrated not not getting a job in the kind of area that I wanted to. And I, I said to him, look, I, I'm, I do want to do a PhD at some stage. So I'm thinking I might go back and do an honours degree um, to see if, I, if it's, you know, floats my boat, if, I, if it's something I want to do. Um, and then he kind of put me onto a few researchers. So I ended up at Monash, which I'm actually back at now doing some casual work um, uh, under uh, 
Carla de Costa and I was doing some, my honours project was on uh, ultra endurance athletes. So, you know, op- optional sort of nutrition support for them. Um, so that kind of, yeah, started my, I guess, you know, research sports nutrition career. Um, and yep. then from there, I was like, yep, yeah, I definitely want to do PhD. I didn't think I was going to get into it as quickly as I did. I pretty much went straight out of honours into a PhD. Um, But it just, yeah, it just, it just happened like that. So, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And it's, was it as challenging as you thought it it might be? Probably more challenging. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it was, um, it was in Canberra. So I was at AIS and then I was working with Brumby. So it was kind of a unique arrangement. So it was situated at the AIS, working with Brumbies. That money was funding the research and that was through ACU. Um, Okay. So you know, typically a PhD is working, you know, just a PhD full-time, um, but yeah. this was kind of work, doing a PhD full-time and then working part-time. And so it was really challenging having to sort of juggle those two, two things, you know, competing interests and, and, and things like that. So that time management thing became really important. Um, yeah. And did that, you say the funding was, um, was part of the part-time responsibility as well? The, the yes. funding for a PhD? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the so the money that was like coming in from Brumbies was sort of funding the research, which was great in terms of I didn't have to look for as many grants and things like that. Um, but it just meant that you know I was on a PhD income, so even that like you're not on a lot of money, so it's pretty challenging just financially, um, and you've got to be pretty committed. I mean, there's some dietitians that are, are you know working uh, doing their PhD, they've got a family, and I just honestly don't know how they do it because. What's yeah. the ballpark roughly? Like, is it base wage? Um, so a scholarship's probably around $30,000. Yeah. And like yeah. you said, you're doing that and a part-time. Yeah. Full-time. And, but yeah, that's an elite sport as well, which is, yeah. you know, plus some. So, the, yeah, you can, you can try it on for size and imagine that's a fair amount of workload. Yeah. Um, obviously, it sounds like you knew where you wanted to go with it and you would have had strong drive. Um, for those that are going through, challenging times with with phd how did you what, what did you learn about yourself what were what were some important um tools to use in terms of like organization and, and how to prioritize uh in your scheduling what were some things that you grew i guess from a personal side that helped you get through that period yeah so i guess there are a couple of elements so it was in my mind it was kind of you know 15 hour days but i knew that it was yeah. there was an end in sight <laughs> well i thought there was at the time <laughs> Uh, until I, yeah, started working and, um, but yeah, sort of thinking that that's only temporary, but I think it probably took me, I kind of started to realize it, I suppose, in my PhD, the importance of balance, but didn't, didn't click until sort of getting out into work and trying to juggle too many things and like essentially like getting burnout um, to, to realize that, that balance and time off and not guilting yourself because, if you don't have that and then you're mentally fatigued and it's just really, really hard to do good work and you end up taking twice as long to do something than if you just allowed yourself the day off and, you know, socializing with friends and family. And so I think that's really, it's really hard to get your head around because you think you have to, the more you work, the more successful you're going to be. But I think it's, you just burn yourself out and you actually, it has the opposite impact. So I think, you know, scheduling time for yourself and scheduling that downtime is really, really important um, because or else you're just not mentally going to be able to get through it. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned there were conflicting interests. What, what were your role? What was your role at the Brumbies? Uh, and was that your first experience, I guess, helping professional athletes as well? Um, yeah, yep. Yep. Yeah, so it would have been a steep learning curve. 
Yeah, so that I was I was quite lucky because my uh, high performance manager there, Ben Sapel, um, he was he has done a PhD himself, um, and he was quite good manager in terms of if there was you know less work to do at the club, then he'd say go home and and work on your PhD or have the afternoon off or um, and then I was mentored through that role uh, through from Louise Burke and Greg Shaw, who are my two uh, PhD supervisors. So. I was really, really well supported in that role. And I know there are a lot of embedded sort of PhD servicing roles that that individual may not be necessarily that well supported, um, mm. which would, yeah, it would just make it such a hard experience. So I think I was, I was really lucky to be able to get that experience, but have really understanding supervisors and um, yeah, people kind of were sensitive of my time. And, you know, if I, you know, everyone along their PhD at some point wants to quit, and I remember going to Louise and saying, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And she goes, and she said, that's fine. Do whatever you need if you need to take six months off. Or, and then just that, knowing that I had that option kind of led me to just keep going because I was like, okay, I'm not stuck in this position. Um, but I think people that don't have good supervisors, I, I can't, yeah, I just don't know how, how they do yeah. it. Yeah. 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 It makes a lot of sense. It's just even something to lean on and like you said, have a bit of a soundboard and, and say some say the things that can just help make you feel like you're not stuck, like you said, and it can just shift the, the mindset. So that's, that's great having that mentor. Yep. Um, if you didn't, what, what do you think you, you would have done? Would it be creating some external mentors, like for those that are in that position um, and now that you, you know the value of having it, but if you don't know it and you've never had it, maybe you, you think it's just all on you, um, how would you go about creating that relationship, I guess? Yeah, I definitely think mentors. So even like in my career now, I still kind of call on mentors, you know, supervisor mentors for career related advice. Um, and it's someone that's, it's good often as well to have someone that's removed from the environment, but understands the environment. So obviously you've got academics or researchers that, you know, may not have worked practically. Um, and then you've got people that are working practically that may not have done research. So if you can find someone, if you can find either like, you know, one of those that can understand different elements of, of stress that you're going through, or you can find someone that's had that embedded uh, experience of doing research and working. I think that, you know, that would probably help because they'll kind of be able to give you ways to manage, you know, your time yeah. and just your, your mental health, I think as well. Yeah. And, and what was the research um, focus with your PhD? Yeah. So it was um, nutrition support for connective tissues. So yeah. um, Greg Shaw, one of my mentors, uh, had previously done a paper with Keith Barr uh, looking at the impact of uh, gelatin on um, engineered ligaments. So ligaments are, are kind of made in a little Petri dish in the lab and then they're tested for kind of their collagen content and, and strength um, as well. So it was kind of a, a you know, lead off from that kind of area and mine was more sort of looking at, I guess, um, optimising the protocols, I suppose, um, to getting to that point. So I know Keith Barr is still doing a lot of research in that space and um, he's got, he does an amazing podcast. So if, if I'd highly recommend listening to those because he's excellent at sort of explaining, uh, you know, scientific things in a really approachable way. Um, What's it called? We can add it in the show notes maybe. Um, so I think he just appears on some. So he's got my muscle science, I think is his um, oh, yeah. yep. Instagram. And then he, uh, yeah. You could you could just Google him on podcasts and he he speaks about it. So, uh, yep. yeah, okay, yeah, I'll add, I'll add it in. And the so yours was almost implementing the information 
and and having some protocols that practitioners could could use with with athletes. Yeah, so it's kind of looking at um, you know timing. Um, we looked at because um, obviously bone broth was uh, all the rage at one point, so we looked to see if that was a, a decent amount of the amino acids that are present in collagen. Um, because obviously it's just everywhere. If you went into health stores, they would, you know, dehydrated, there's jars of it, all those kind of things. Um, and then, yeah, we looked at um, the timing. So when it actually peaks within in the blood, so after consumption, so um, with collagen and connective tissues, timing is really important. So we wanted to see when it actually is present um, within the system. Um, and then we also wanted to see if we could find a, a marker of collagen intake to kind of look at be able to kind of control background intake. So it was all kind of that stuff to, you know, make a really robust study that needs to be done um, to kind of answer those questions to be able to implement that, you know, really well-controlled yeah. study. Yeah, yeah, it sounds thorough. And, and you mentioned the timing is important. What would be some takeaway things for athletes that are keen to strengthen their connective tissues and prevent them, you know, or get stronger, uh, but also to prevent them from injury? Yep. What would be some big takeaways to, to start practising? Yeah, so with the um, like your ligaments and tendons, because they're obviously poorly supplied by blood, the idea of the timing is to have it when that blood flow is peaked. So it's taking those amino acids, you know, when they're peaking within the blood to the tissue at that peak time. So we found that that was between sort of 30, 30 to 40 minutes. 34 minutes. This is post-exercise? Pre-exercise. Oh, pre-exercise. Yeah. Ah, okay. So, yeah. so you're wanting to, system. yeah, so you consume it at peaks in the blood and then when you've got that pleat, peak blood flow, they're kind of there ready to go to, I guess, take to those tissues. Oh, interesting. And then um, would different, did, was, was different training programs involved at the time like, or, or all athletes doing a little bit of you know, main strength, power work um, and conditioning or, or there's a different AIS athletes that you're working with? Yeah, so we didn't actually do any uh, sort of intervention protocols. This is more just purely looking at, you know, taking, um, getting them to consume different uh, collagen supplements. Um, yeah. And we also looked at casein as well and then taking blood at, at different time points and then analysing that blood and then seeing where those amino acids peak. So then from there, that, that would um, sort of guide your implementation strategy of when you'd be looking at it, when it's sort of, as I said, optimal in the blood to, to get it to those tissues. Gotcha. Yeah. And you mentioned bone broth is all the craze in the health food stores and um, yeah, it's everywhere. Is it, is it a worthy thing to, to start implementing into your nutrition uh, right yeah. now? Yeah. So unfortunately... So I developed lots of different types of bone broth. Um, the thing about bone is it actually contains uh, metal as well. So in that fact, it can be dangerous if you're over-consuming bone broth because you, you may over-consume uh, metals, um, but it also kind of left this really metallic kind of smell throughout the AIS, which I wasn't the, the <laughs> favourite person for a while there. Um, but we looked at some sort of commercial varieties. We made some, we got some from a paleo store and they were all just all over the place in terms of their amino acid content. So yeah. when we're looking at that targeted amount of, of that sort of uh, collagen protein, it just wasn't found to be reliable enough to use as kind of a, a source. And then, as I said, it's got that risk of, you know, ingestion of metals. Um, so. Okay. And what, what was the most consistent? You mentioned casein. Uh, was that? Yeah, in terms... Resource? Yeah, so your co so collagen, obviously your um, your gelatin and hydrolyzed collagen, um, they've got those kind of key amino acids. We don't know yet if if casein. So obviously, when you break down proteins, it's broken down into amino acids, and their different types of proteins have different sort of amino acid profiles. So um, 
yeah, we obviously need to do more more work and studies to see if there's sort of any impact of, you know, casein compared to um, hydrolyzed collagen because yep. there's sort of different amino acids and, yeah, it's not clear, you know, whether it's a specific amino acid or peptide um, chains of those amino acids that are sort of having the impact. So there's kind of a lot of lot more research in that space that needs to be done. But, yeah, for the, for the bone broth varieties, just too variable, um, whereas obviously collagen, uh, your supplements, you're getting a targeted amount. Yeah. And is there a role in nutrition for injury management uh, and or prevention for, for footballers? Yeah. So obviously the collagen space is a big one. So collagen um, is the most prominent uh, protein in your body. So it's in skin, it's in bone, um, it's, you know, um, yeah, as I said, connective tissues. So it's in all of your, your body's tissues. So, um, you know, potentially there's a role with collagen supplementation um, with injury prevention. Um, and then obviously your, your bodies are made, you know, we eat, we need to eat to survive. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, if you don't eat, your body's going to break down. So if you don't have good nutrition, um, you, your body's going to break down or you're not going to be optimizing those, that tissue integrity. So it's kind of, it's something that athletes will often roll their eyes at dietitians when we say, you know, eat good diet quality, because it's kind of like eats you fruits and veggies and, you know, your, your dairy and all these kind of food, food groups. But there's a a good impact in terms of injury prevention in that because you're providing your body with everything it needs to make cr- like strong, rigid tissues. So if you think of bone, muscle, connective tissue, yeah. So there's definitely um, definitely a role in terms of that. And then um, you know there's more sort of um, I guess increasing awareness around you know potential low energy availability in team sports, um, which has well, been well studied within sort of female athletes, but not as much in male athletes and certainly not as much in this team sports area. Um, mm-hmm. And this low energy availability can have an impact on, on bone health, for example. So, so there's definitely a role uh, in terms of prevention and then also treatment as well. So you can actually speed up an athlete's return to play by supporting them with the right nutrition. So Yeah, and it, it, I imagine it would vary a fair bit, but is there a recommended amount of collagen we should be having each day? Uh, and how does that depend from body mass to gender and age or what are the key sort of variables, I guess, that people need to be aware of? Yeah, so that's still research that needs to be done. Um, yeah. so, There's another PhD right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's so much unknown about that space. Um, and I know yeah, Keith's okay. doing sort of more in the performance-based uh, sort of area within the collagen research. So um, at the moment, the research is kind of 15 to 20 grams. I'd be surprised if there wasn't a dose response because obviously, you know, your, your tissues are different sizes if you're a smaller compared to a larger athlete, um, but it hasn't sort of been looked into um, at this point in time. Yeah. yeah so it's yeah. more in terms of the amount, it would, it would be trying to get to that 15 to 20 grams, which, yeah, is, is not, not too difficult. And it's more around, I guess, timing with what tissue you're trying to target. Yeah. And then. Um, for those that don't want to take supplements or, um, yeah, maybe from a funding point of view or they just want to get it from real food, what would be some um, food choices to make to get that 15 to 20 grams? Yeah, so it's, it's harder to get in, in food sources. Again, great um, study, a great research area to have a look at sort of we know that it, it stays in the body for only six hours, so it's not going to kind of build up and, and going to increase in amount. Um, mm-hmm. with the food source, so just gelatin. So um, like Pansy's gelatin, it's like used for cooking and um, obviously component of, of, of jellies and things like that. Um, it's a food source of, of collagen, um, so it's not necessarily, it's, it's really cheap. 
it's not as palatable as like a hydrolyzed collagen because hydrolyzed collagen has had bonds broken, so it mixes a lot easier in water. Um, but if someone doesn't sort of have, you know, the funding, um, that's a good good option if they can just, you know, get it down and, um, yeah, without the need for, for supplements. So you can, there's a few recipes floating around for jellies and gummies and things on the internet. Okay. Um, yeah, but jelly itself isn't a good source because it just doesn't have enough of, of the gelatin in it. So Yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. That's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> so I have tried making marshmallows because they're, they're obviously got gelatin in them. Okay. So, yeah, if you can be creative yeah. and have a little test in the, in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and you can get your gelatin in with your desserts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just have a really, really thick jelly every night. Yeah. If anyone's thinking about uh, joining the Prepare Like Pro Academy, I definitely recommend it ever since I've joined it a few months ago. I feel so much more motivated, more fitter, more stronger, more supportive as well. Some of the things he gets you, gets you doing is great for building up your capacity, muscle mass, injury prevention, everything you could need that you wouldn't even think of if you were making up your own plan. So Jackie's a nice fellow, he knows he knows what he's doing. Just flick him a message, he'll get you set up, no worries. He might even get you on to a few giveaways, a few free trials. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. And what about um, protein intake uh, and, and post-workout? There, there seems to be a strong myth in the fitness industry about you know the, the window post-training and for those that want to build muscle mass or or maybe help uh, optimize recovery there's this like special window of whatever it is 10 minutes 30 minutes seems to change a fair bit but what's your take on it um protein intake for someone that for an athlete let's say footballer that wants to gain some muscle mass um how important is it and um what are some things to to focus on when it comes to protein intake when you want to build hypertrophy yeah so the protein spread and distribution over the day is going to be more important so post um training, I guess, uh, you know, you, you want to kickstart that recovery. So the sooner you can get it in, the better. Um, it's not going to be magical if you do that on its, on its own though. It's more sort of getting those regular hits. So often, you know, we'll back end protein intake towards the end of the day, but making sure you're getting it in breakfast, you know, potentially your snacks as well, depending on timing. So every three to four hours is what we kind of recommend. Um, and the good thing as well is there's plenty of um, high protein foods out there now. So, you know, you've got Chobani Fit, you've got um, GoPro, Complete Dairy, like there's, there's plenty of food sources there that you can get those hits of protein in. But you're also, in terms of injury prevention, you're also going to be getting things like calcium um, in through those, those intakes of food. So you can kind of hit multiple goals with, with cho- choosing food sources. So yeah, that would be kind of more, I, I guess, important than just that post, um, yeah. you know, post-exercise intake. Yeah. And while we're on the topic, because it seems to be quite popular in nutrition and probably the same with fitness industry. There's a lot of trends and things sort of come back into fashion and then they go away for a period of time. But um, what's your take on, on diets for someone that wants to get a, get a result, get an outcome? Um, yeah, what's your philosophy when it comes to following a, a diet, whether it be paleo, uh, being vegan, um, whatever it might be? Yeah. Keto. Yeah, so I guess there's like in as a dietitian, as a clinical dietitian in the back of my mind and every, you know, every other dietitian that I know, we're always going to be promoting that dietary adequacy. So it's not, I don't think it's our job to tell someone necessarily they can't eat a certain way if they, they really want to, if they really want to try something out, but it's our job to make sure that they're getting all of the nutrients that they need, that they're not going to be putting their bodies at risk. 
there's no, in terms of, you know, if they're trying to lean up, for example, it's more about that energy deficit. Um, and I would say maintaining that muscle and having a good amount of, of lean mass, um, that's going to be more effective than some, you know, diet that, you know, potentially is going to actually break down muscle and, and have the opposite ultimate effect that you're trying to have. So I would say general healthy eating, um, you know, but there's, yeah, there's certainly no sort of quick fix, but it's more just about that energy, you know, manipulation and, and making sure you're eating according to your training loads and fluctuating your intake. So you're not, you know, having an excessive amount on a day, you're not doing any training. And then the flip side as well, you're not under consuming when you're sort of needing that for performance-based efforts and things. Yeah. And what would be some good resources for, for those that want to educate themselves? What would be like your, your go-to for someone that wants to read up on um, yeah, eating healthy and, and uh, getting that energy intake in. Yeah, so Sports Dietitians Australia have some really good um, fact sheets just for the general information for different sports and we'll give kind of specific information around training diet and body composition and things like that. So I think they're a really good, uh, it's a really good resource um, for athletes. If you want to get a bit more scientific, the Gatorade, Gatorade Sports Science Institute, I find their fact sheets and sort of summaries of the research is, is really good um, oh. to be able to sort of put everything together. And it's kind of that, as I said, that next level up from sort of the more simple uh, fact sheets. Yeah, yeah. And going back to your career journey, so you're, yeah, you're, you're working long days, like you said, gearing yourself up 15-hour days and uh, it's a bit of a grind, but you're, you're getting through it. Uh, how did you get... Um, to Melbourne and um, you know, what was the progression from working in the Institute, doing a PhD and then working at Brumby's part-time? What was the next step from Yeah, so I'm actually from Melbourne originally. So I'm, I moved over to Canberra for three years uh, to do the PhD. Yep. Um, and then towards the end of my PhD, when I was doing more the sort of write-up, which is the, <laughs> that's the arduous part because you're writing, you know, 60 to 70 plus thousand words. Um, I, there was a job going at Melbourne Rebels and as I said, Ben Spell was a great manager and I said to him, look, I would love to get back to Melbourne. And he said, you know, go for it. I'm not going to hold you here. So, um, yeah, came back, get, got into Rebels and then obviously being situated at Amy Park, there's multiple teams there. Um, and then eventually, I think maybe a year, yeah, it was just actually before I'd finished my PhD, the role came up at our Melbourne uh, Football Club. So that's how that I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. So straight into full-time work before I'd finished my PhD. So it was just, yeah, from starting year 12 to now, it's just been nonstop. So, yeah. 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 Oh, good on you. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's leading you in a, in a, in a great, you've had many opportunities both in research and elite sports. So it's amazing. And it's inspiring for someone that um wants to work in that space it does come down to hard work i'm sure many other things um but you can you can see that your work ethic is something that obviously you value and and is that one area that you feel you've always had or have you been out or have you sort of worked on that what's your sort of take on work ethic and, and the importance of it for working at you know at the high level yeah, so I think it was it, like I just I wanted it i wanted it so badly that i was prepared to just continue to do whatever it take to get there yeah. Um, as I said, I burnt myself out at, at one point. So I think there's only so long that you can maintain that. Um, yeah. So I think it is, it's just being persistent and, you know, it's, there's so many setbacks and so many disappointments and it like, it can suck, but then, you know, you just got to move on and then, you know, get, get into the next thing and just keep 
keep pushing. So it's, I guess it's similar in sport. Like, you know, you, you win some, you lose some. It's the same kind mm. of concept with, with work. You just kind of keep, yeah, whatever setbacks you have, just keep going, trying to take it in your stride and just, just keep working. Yeah. And for those that aren't aware, haven't worked with a sports dietitian before or maybe haven't worked in, in sport before, what would be a, a um, typical day uh, when you're, when you're working uh, at that stage in your career where you're finishing your PhD in the writing stage and then working part-time at Rebels? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to say because working team sports, there's no two days that are the same. And it's hard, I guess, as a being a bit of a planner, you know, you try to plan as much as you can, but then, you know, they're training venue changes or particularly with COVID, you know, one minute we're going to South Australia, the next minute we're going to Tasmania. So, um, yeah, it's, there's no like structure in terms of what you're doing day to day. It just depends on, you know, having an overall view of what you're trying to aim to achieve, I guess, throughout, you know, the season and, um, you know, within the week and you, you kind of target areas. Um, yeah, but in terms of writing, that was literally just sitting at my computer for hours, walking to the fridge, seeing what was in there, going back at my computer. That's yeah. pretty much the end of the PhD. Um, and that's a, you know, less glamorous side of research, the fun side's doing the data collection and, and finding this, the story from that. Um, and then I guess working as a sports dietitian, um, you're, you're in there pretty early. Um, particularly Melbourne is training out at Casey Fields at the moment. So that's a good hour drive away from St Kilda, uh, which is where I'm, I'm currently at. So you, you rock up and then it's kind of, um, yeah, trying to get those, you know, you, you can try and plan some sort of one-on-one consultations, but often it's just those corridor chats that you're having with athletes that, you know, that's they're the, the most effective ways. And then you've in the background, there's a lot of sort of food service and catering. And particularly that was a big component in um, you know, during COVID, because obviously there was a lot of traveling and hotel stays and quarantines and all those kind of things as well. Um, and then um, things like your um, supplement management, um, you know, making sure there's no risk to the, the players, making sure everything's batch tested. Um, there's component, there was, you know, times where I was cooking snacks for the players. And then obviously you've got things like preparation for game day and then actually doing game day. So, it's pretty varied uh, in terms of, of what you're doing and you obviously try to make an overall plan, but sometimes it doesn't always fit perfectly like that in sports. Just being adaptable, I think, is really important in that setting. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that and getting a better understanding, I guess, of the context on how it all works. It sounds like there's a few different hats um, that you, that you um, need to have um, with, if you're working on your, the, the academic side and then also pursuing the elite game and then I'm I imagine did you have to work in the clinic a little bit as well in the private practice to make ends meet um, during that those years? Yeah, so I did uh, during my PhD. Is that what you mean? Yeah, oh. yeah, PhD. Like you moved back to Melbourne after the Rebels uh, after yep. uh, Brumbies. Yeah, so I was doing a bit of um, clinic work more so in terms of just not wanting to box myself into one particular sport or to, you know just team sports. It was more kind of trying to keep my experience a bit more broad and. Obviously, it's a completely different setting in a private practice setting. You've got someone there for a good 45, 30 minutes to 45 minutes, up to an hour sometimes, where you can, you know, do a lot of education and things like that. Whereas, as I said, in, in sporting environments, it's more kind of on-the-fly consultations. So, and I guess in, in private practice, there's a lot of sort of weight loss and things like that. So, behavior change is a big component. So, it kind of, it helps support what you're doing, I guess, in team sports, but also, um yeah, it was trying not to narrow, I guess, what I was doing in that setting. Yeah. Yeah. And what was the feeling like? You mentioned 
you, you received a full-time role at Melbourne just, just as you were finishing your PhD. Sounds like it would have been an exciting time in your career. Um, everything's coming together. What, what, firstly, I guess, with the PhD, uh, how long did it take and what was the feeling once it was complete? Yeah, so it's three and a half years and then you sort of send it off and you have to make amendments to it and then sort of all up it was about four years. Um, yep. So, yeah, Which printing. Pretty, uh, pretty yeah. quick for those in elite sport, I, I'd imagine. Yeah, no, it was, it was, I got it, got it over and done with pretty quickly, which was nice. Um, but yeah, that printing off and then binding everything up and then just, I was, I had this paranoia handing it in that I was going to get hit by a car or something on the way there, just that I'd finished this thesis holding it in my hands and I was like, no. going to fly everywhere, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just want to get it handed in now. So yeah, it was pretty, pretty awesome. Um, and then, yeah, getting the, I mean, Bit of an anticlimax getting the certificate via email as opposed to getting up on stage during COVID. But oh no, yeah, yeah, yeah that's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, um, and and looking back, is it uh, everything you want it to be in terms of growth and opportunities and opening doors in your career? Uh, for those that are thinking about it, is it worth the hard work? Do you think? And yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. It um, as I said, that persistence it, it definitely paid off because it people's after a while people start to know that you're how committed you are to you know um being in that role and succeeding so it starts to that's i think what what's get what gets you the job so obviously you know having a phd is is great but if you can kind of show you're really committed and you're um really keen to sort of put the, the work in i think that that's what ends up getting you the job in that area so um yeah, and I, 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 got, I suppose my progression to now sort of going into lecturing and, and, you know, back into research, I feel like I've got a good set of experience sort of under my belt now. So when I'm actually teaching, I'll be able to talk about real world experiences um, and be able to, you know, with research, have more sort of applied research rather than something that's great in a lab but may not work in sort of a team sport setting. So, mm-hmm. And the full-time role at Melbourne, were you replacing someone that was full-time? Were, some, were previous dietitians there part-time? Um, yeah, talk, talk us through what's a typical sort of setup for a sports dietitian working in an elite sport. Is it casual, part-time, full-time? Yeah, so it was only casual. Uh, sorry, it was only a part-time role. Um, yeah. So I was doing sort of Melbourne Rebels part-time and Melbourne Football Club part-time. Um, and then that when COVID hit, like it wasn't possible to sort of work in the two different settings. So it's pretty rare to have a full-time role um, in a team sports setting. And it's, I, I definitely think the work is there and I definitely think it can, you know, particularly when there's men's, women's teams, academy, sort of VFL, things like that. I definitely think there's enough scope. Um, mm-hmm. And as I said, with, you know, different elements of having, you know, a role of nutrition for injury prevention and management, there's definitely enough work there to be able to um, have a full-time role, but it often just doesn't, doesn't happen that way. So it can get difficult because often you're juggling multiple different things. And sometimes, you know, um, a lesson that I've had to learn is saying no to opportunities because sometimes you get really excited and you say yes to everything. And then all of a sudden you're trying to stretch yourself too thin and you're probably not doing as good a job at things as you, as you want to, because you're just trying to do too many things. So yeah, yeah, that's great advice. And, and what about for the athletes listening in? Um, Melbourne obviously won the premiership, a lot of success, and um, yeah, they're, they're probably going into the next couple of years favourites at this stage. Uh, they're certainly a red-hot team and club. Um, what were some things that you noticed in the club and with the players that they did really well? Um, and what do you get excited about when you're, when you're 
working with an athlete and they're showing they're asking certain questions or, or they're just presenting in a certain way where you think, yep, yeah, we're going to get a good good result here. Yeah. So I think resilience is that key thing. So persistence, you know, that that whole, you know, a loss, like the, the way that they would pick themselves up and kind of go back to dealing with things with a sense of humour and, you know, it wasn't like sadness at the club for like a week and leading into the next game. It was just that real resilience and um, I think Max Gorn's great at sort of leading the team through that. Like even within a in a game, he's kind of there kind of picking them up even, you know, and obviously they did that a lot. They turned around when they were losing. So I think that's a, like a massive key thing that they, they sort of had. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think in terms of um, – I think – I think, yeah, that's probably number one and, and initiative. Um, I think the athletes, you know, and I've seen it in, in rugby and, you know, now working in soccer as well, the athletes that take initiative and sort of you don't have to prompt them to do things that, you know, they really want to learn and they ask questions and they're just like sponges. They're the ones that you can just see progressing. And I think um, often, you know, at a younger age, talent sort of gets them through, but there's a, there's a point in your career that that's, you know, when you start aging, that's not going to have as much of an impact. And those extra little bits and pieces that you're doing, you know, your training, your nutrition, your off-season stuff, that's what kind of has that, you know, more value, I suppose. Yeah. 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 And looking back at your your career, what what would be your most fondest memory? What's a highlight that you look back of um, and, yeah, proudly of? And, uh, yeah, it's a memory that you like to think about. Yeah, so there's probably a couple. So I think the hub was a, a great experience. Um, and I think like I was quite lucky because often, you know, being a dietitian in a, a team sport, you're not there as much as everyone else. So building that rapport can be quite difficult. Um, and obviously being in the hub, you're kind of around people and, you know, seeing them in social situations and you wouldn't have as much contact. Um, so, and I think just getting to know players as as people, um, not just athletes. I think that's that, that was a really nice um you know, memory, I guess, nice experience to have had. Um, and playing the Anzac Day match when all the phones sort of lit up the stadium, that's, I've never seen anything like that before or working and not playing it. Um, but yeah, that was a pretty amazing, um, amazing thing to watch. And then, yeah, I mean, it, during the grand final, it would have been great to be there, but, you know, watching that on TV and watching the success of the players and see all their hard work sort of come into um, fruition. That was obviously also a great memory. So yeah, like the last couple of years I've been at Melbourne, I've, yeah, really fond memories and, and really nice to be able to sort of have that to go into the next next part of or next phase of my career. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that next phase of careers back in research um, with Monash and, and Latrobe in, in the new year. Um, take, take us through the role that's going on with, with the program. Um, and yeah, what what will your role entail? Yes, yeah, so that's that's still sort of being worked out. So um, at Latrobe, they've got that emerging athletes program. So really, really exciting space. It's it's something they've only recently just got um, S and C in that role. Um, so Mitch is the S and C, um, and uh, I I've just started obviously as a performance dietitian, um, and it's really kind of a blank slate. So. It's awesome. awesome because it's it's athletes. It's got you know judo athletes, cross country skiing, AFL, rugby. So it's all different types of athletes, and um, yeah, awesome experience. So trying to sort of build up that program and see what we can actually do with that. Um, and obviously, there's a lecturing component. So um, 
going to be lecturing predominantly, I think, sports nutrition um, and then obviously the research. I think I'd, I'd like to, you know, utilise the emerging athletes there, but also hopefully do some um, research within footy clubs or um, within that sort of applied setting as well. Yeah. And you mentioned there's a lot of work in, in elite sports and you've worked in uh, well, all, all the three big codes in team sports now, like AFL, rugby and, and A-League. Um, what, what do you think, uh, like how do you think that program could work? Would, would it be one head sports dietitian that oversees the VFL, uh, women and men's program, AFL, AFL women's in the academy, and then you've got one dietitian in each that are sort of like casual or um, would it be better to have maybe a men's dietitian and then a women's dietitian both full-time that look after all the program? Yeah, how do you think, what do you think the future is um, in sports yeah. dietitians at clubs? Yeah, so I think I like I quite like the model that they have um, in the UK where they've often got a lead sort of dietitian and then dietitians, you know, it might be a junior dietitian or um, whatnot working underneath them. Um, so then, you know, you're obviously overseeing you may, maybe the men's program, then you've got a dietitian working with the women's program, um, that, that kind of thing. And obviously like with um, VFL, there's plenty of, you know, opportunities to sort of work across multiple teams and things like that. Um, I'd, I'd like to see more research being done. I mean, um, Dom Kondo and M. Meehan are doing some research um, in AFL uh, at the moment, but I'd like to sort of see. I'm, I'm hoping that with my role at Latrobe, um, there's obviously links, you know, the universities have, have links to the footy team. So being able to come combine those roles a little bit more and be able to do some more sort of research. And um, yeah, so I think there's, there's, multiple ways that it can be done and there's a massive amount of scope so it would be really nice to sort of see um you know some full-time roles but also some research being embedded and then um internships and things like that as well i think it's a really good opportunity um obviously sports nutrition there's not that many roles so if there's an opportunity to do some internships and have dietitians coming out of uni that aren't just clinically you know based and or clinically trained and thinking that the hospital is the only setting they can step into I think that would be really nice to see that sort of evolve as well. Yeah, yeah. And it, does the clinic, like you mentioned, that you don't have as much time in the elite sport, um, does the clinic, those consultations and, and I guess getting in the time, and the reps, so to speak, does that help transfer to when you don't have as much time in elite sport and these corridor conversations uh, or are they completely different based altogether? Yeah, they're completely different. To be honest, I think that in the, you know, the corridor conversations are more effective because if you think of sitting there with someone for, you know, your information gathering, but there's only so much information someone's going to take in at one session. So, um, and then you don't see them for another month. So it's really hard to kind of get that traction. And whereas if you see, you know, a footballer and you've got two or three things they're working on, you can just kind of keep checking on that and, and growing from that. So it's, it's, I find those corridor and those, you know, brief, but more often um, I find that more effective than, you know, one hour or whatever, and then not seeing them again for a month or so. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then how, how would you, like, would there be a, a system in place or is it more just you would, all right, I've got 30 minutes, I'm going to aimlessly walk through the gym, I'm going to go, I'm going to hang around yeah. this area because you know that players are going to walk past you and do you have a list of players that you're going into that time block or that day where you're like, I need it get to this person or is it more just organic and it, you just sort of let the players almost come to you and it's more a player-led um, scenario? Yes, I think it's a bit of everything. So, like, obviously, if you've had, you know, you've had a game on the weekend and there's some injured players, they'd probably be priority because you want to sort of kickstart what you're doing, nutrition support with them to help, 
you know, with the healing or, or whatnot. Um, and then you might have a list of players that you're working with, you know, sort of long term. And then, yeah, it's, it's all a bit of, bit of everything. Um, and then obviously sort of the younger players, like you've, you've got some opportunities to do education sessions with them, but not much. So often if they're proactive and they're kind of coming up to you and, you know, you might be packing a, a game day box and they just come up and say, hey, I, I was wondering about this. Um, yeah, so I think it's all kind of a mixture of, of everything. So, and that's, you know, being on ground provides that opportunity because you, you are there, you can go into the gym, like you said, and, you know, just they might have five minutes between, you know, rotations or whatever that you can just quickly catch up with them. Um, yeah, so I think it's a sort of a combination of everything. There's not, yeah, mm-hmm. not a lot of structure often. Um, and yeah. Organized chaos. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and for, <laughs> For the developing athletes, what were some common things that you would um, change with it? Or, or, or you mentioned the two or three things that an athlete would focus on. Uh, what were some common trends amongst developing footballers? Yeah, so I think that back to that sort of diet quality and diet adequacy, it's, it's one of those things that it, it do, it's not, you know, doesn't sell. It's not one of those glamorous kind of things, but it has so much impact that, you know, it's, it's going to have yeah, more impact than any supplement or any, you know, post training protein shake or um, so I think that's kind of the key thing that you're starting at. So obviously making sure that they're sort of eating well first and foremost. Um, and then, you know, training, obviously supporting what they're doing with their training so they've got enough energy and, you know, recovering and not putting themselves at risk of, you know, that low energy availability or um, yeah. And I think just getting them to start their brains kind of ticking over on what nutrition means. Um, Cause we were briefly chatting about you know, nutrition just being thought of as body composition, but obviously there's so much more that we can do. Um, and, and often, you know, they will comment, oh, I didn't know that that had a role in, you know, injury management or had a role in this. Or So I think getting them to start think about, thinking about how it's going to work for them. Um, and yeah, obviously there's not a one size fits all. So they might think, okay, I get gassed at the end of, you know, the last quarter or whatever, or, you know, I've got this niggling pain or, so trying to be more, get them to reflect on what they need nutrition to be doing for them. I think that's really important to try and get that sort of started embedded early um, within them. So they start sort of practicing that and yeah, continuously reflecting on that. Yeah. Amazing. Well, yeah. thank you so much. There's been uh, a lot of information that's come through, but also more importantly, how to implement that information, which uh, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on back. And uh, if I do find that first version, um, well, we can make a bit of a hybrid video uh, for those listening to the, in the podcast world we we did do an interview with Rebecca probably two months three months ago now and on search for it so if I find it uh, there was gems in there as well but thankfully um, Rebecca was kind enough to come back on and I'm really glad that we've had this time to, to share your journey as well as um, have you on and help uh, educate uh, the listeners around the importance of nutrition particularly around athlete development performance and um, injury uh, prevention and, and rehabilitation. What's what's on the horizon for you for the rest of the year, Rebecca? You're going to get some time off. You mentioned it's been a big, pretty big decade for you. Um, yeah. Have you got some time off? We're, we're up and about now in Melbourne, uh, which is good. Uh, what's the rest of the year look like for you? Yeah. So I just I just had a couple of weeks off um, and just I didn't do much. Just got back into training and just explored Melbourne again because obviously we've just opened up. Um, I'm doing some casual work with Monash, um, so working with sort of the gut integrity um, team that works at, at Monash there. 
Um, and then Western United, obviously, they're in season now, so doing some um, consulting with them and, yeah, moving over to the other side of town, so moving over to Northcote, um, so obviously to be closer to Latrobe Uni, which will be nice, bit of a change-up. I've been in this area for about three years, so, yeah, definitely like a, a fresh start, so I'm definitely looking forward to that and, yeah, having a bit of, you know, I'm, I'm not, not working at the moment, but just not working as much as I was, which is really nice. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Well, thank, thank you for coming on and, and thank you for those that have tuned in live or, or, and for those listening in the podcast world at some point in the future. Um, for those listening live, our next live chat is with Kevin Ball on the 30th of November. Uh, that will be at 8.30pm. Kevin's a biomechanist, a real expert when it comes to kicking biomechanics. Um, so if you want to listen into that episode, head over to our YouTube channel and we'll post it. Uh, the details on our Instagram. But thanks again, Beck, for tuning in. And thanks for everyone else for listening. No worries. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian at the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, like yeah, game changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes. And, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete. Four. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with academy member Rama Davies, the strength conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us. Awesome. So he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So. I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful. Plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my my question to you was: you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time 
um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, it might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear, fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest, or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.